0: real noom users compensated to provide their story in four weeks a typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary
1: today's show is brought to you by our supporters on patreon including our commodore class that's commodore's obvious blood groove torso and pinches ironside md hartman gingrich clan roland D'Souza, Casey, Felony Melanie, Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our Quartermaster class, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, and Howard. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons. Welcome to the crew, Ben, Brandon, Dimitri, Gwyn, Jared, Lukey, Maroon Gang, and Matthew. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast, my name is Matt, thank you for listening. For the past couple of episodes concerning the attack on the Mughal treasure ships Ganji Sawai and Fatim Muhammad, and the subsequent abuses of the people on board, we've been relying largely on the account of one man. Thanks to the English grand jury literally throwing away the transcripts of the trial that gave the Englishman's account of the events on the day. We instead rely, almost entirely, on the records collected by a Mughal historian and journalist named Kafi Khan. I'm grateful that his account of the events exists, but what I wouldn't give to have some corroborating sources here! Kafi Khan is not at all an unbiased source. He hated the English, and you know it's hard to blame him. England was in the process of a very slow invasion of India. Kafi Khan was of the opinion that the Mughal were the rightful foreign imperial overlords of the Indian people, didn't like that the English were moving in on their territory. His father had been an imperial historian that worked for the royal family, and Kafi Khan had aspirations to follow in his father's footsteps. But as yet, he had not earned that distinction. He did work for the royal family as a a messenger, which is nothing to scoff at, carrying the emperor's messages, but it wasn't what Khan wanted for himself. In his spare time, he was writing a comprehensive history of the Mughal Empire, which he did finish, and it's an excellent early source on their history. But it was not yet completed in September of 1695. At the time, he was on a mission for Aurangzeb, carrying letters and missives from the capital at Delhi to Surat. Then he'd travel on to Bombay, where he'd have to deal with the, English, but then he'd go back to Delhi. While he was in Surat, though, rumors began to spread of an attack out on the ocean. And a few days later, a small group of haggard, damaged ships arrived there at port. One of them clearly belonged to the imperial royal family, and as representative of the emperor, he investigated, and he was shocked at what he found. This is episode 223, Spoils. Ganji Sawai and her retinue arrived in Surat on September 12, 1695 a week after Henry Every and the pirates let them go. Now, that would not normally have been a voyage of a week, but they were badly damaged. Coffee Khan took it upon himself to speak to the victims of the attack, to gather evidence and take down their statements. We don't have those original statements, but we do have what Coffee Khan tells us about them. However, the picture he painted of what happened on the day of the attack is... not 100% accurate. Naturally, as a good and patriotic Mughal correspondent, he was going to lie through his teeth about anything that made the Mughal Empire look even moderately bad. First, and the easiest to quantify for us, were the numbers of troops and the losses in battle. In Khan's version of the story... Three very large English pirate ships arrived on the scene and bombarded the Ganji Sawai with overwhelming firepower. They were really just impressive titans of the sea that looked suspiciously like the East India men that the East India Company uses in their trading fleets, my lord. Those three massive pirate ships vomited 1,500 wild-eyed barbarians onto the deck of Ganji Sawai, men who opened fire, killing in their opening volley almost exclusively women and children, at which point the 200 brave defenders of the Mughal ship drew their swords and stood for a staunch defense. They held the line, they protected the civilians below decks, each man killed a dozen pirates or more, It was all dashing heroics, you know, men swinging from the rigging, fearful duels in which a single Mughal swordsman would parry five or six English blades at a time. Impressive stuff. And they would have won the day, but they were betrayed. Stephen Johnson characterizes Coffee Khan's assessment of Captain Ibrahim Khan as a debauched aristocrat. And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic about Coffee Khan's account of events on the day, but not too much so. I'll read a passage from Khan's account of what happened. He wrote, quote, The Christians are not so bold in their use of the sword, and there were so many weapons on board the royal vessel, that if the captain had made any resistance, they must have been defeated. But as soon as the English began to board... Ibrahim Khan ran down into the hold. There were some turkey girls he had bought at Mocha as concubines for himself. He put turbans on their heads and swords into their hands and incited them to fight. These fell into the hands of the enemy, who soon became perfect masters of the ship. Now this actually brings up a couple of things that I said about those slave girls. I told you that they were white Europeans, likely bought as an investment for sale in Surat. This account, who would know better, tells us that they were Turkish and bought as sex slaves for the captain. Now, I was working from a different account, a European account, which was also questionable. That account was probably trying to paint the captain in as bad a light as possible for a European audience manipulating the words of Kafi Khan to their own ends, but everyone, including this Mughal historian, is lying. They can't help themselves. It's all propaganda from all sides. When the stakes were as high as they were, when war seemed imminent, telling the truth was not an option. What's that Churchill quote? In time of war, the truth requires a bodyguard of lies. Kofi Khan goes on to tell us that only 25 Mughal soldiers died in the battle, while hundreds of Englishmen lay dead. This directly contradicts the account of another sailor, who we will talk about later, that says only one pirate died while dozens and dozens of Mughal soldiers lay dead. The numbers we discussed previously, a couple of hundred dead from all sides, comes from a consensus taken at the trial. But in Coffee Khan's version, despite the overwhelming prowess of the Mughal soldiers, the numbers of pirates were just too many. Combined with the cowardice of this debauched aristocrat, the ship did surrender. Now, very little of that assessment is really that accurate, given what we learn later. But what he talks about next is usually accepted as pretty hard fact. The bacchanal of murder and torture and rape that was to follow. Now, I'm not here to tell you that that didn't happen, but it is a bit suspicious that the only real record we have of that horrific event comes from a man who hated England with real passion. A man who was, and this is an important factor, actively arguing for a war with the English. With every opportunity he had, he would tell officials, you know, Sire, we need to go to war to push the heathens out of India once and for all. And this is the source that tells us that these Englishmen were guilty of mass rape. Now, I don't doubt in any way that there were abuses, many of them, heaped upon the people of the Mughal ships that were captured that day. All of them terrible, all of them criminal, but... Were they what Coffee Khan tells us they were? We might never really know. We do know that when the pirates who were allegedly part of that atrocity were tried for their crimes back in England, the jury found them not guilty. And then, any transcripts that might corroborate or contradict the story of Coffee Khan were destroyed by the government of England. Not only that, they were banned from public discourse. No one was to even discuss them in any kind of publication. They erased the words of the pirates, so the only account we have is that of a man who hated England. So on the one hand, you have the account of a man who very much wanted to paint the English in the worst light possible. On the other hand, from the English you get... sort of an... odd series of accounts... Stephen Johnson brings up a great point on this in regard to the sources in English. He writes in Enemy of All Mankind, quote, There is a strange reluctance in the literature of piracy to center the camera on these kind of offenses. Strange because the literature is otherwise happy to feed you the gore and terror of the pirate's life in such intimate detail. If you want to read about Thomas II dying on board the Amity." Holding his small intestines in his hand, there are a thousand pages in the archive that will give you that experience, uncensored. Gang rape, on the other hand, gets condensed down to a euphemism. The men dishonored the women. Now, the account of Coffee Khan is certainly flawed and propagandistic, but it's what we have. It may be sensationalized, it may even stretch the truth almost to breaking. But it is not a fiction. The pirates did torture, murder, and rape there on the Ganji Sawai. And of course steal. But what really matters isn't what the truth was. It matters what the truth was believed to be. Because that is what people reacted to. While Coffee Khan was busy gathering all of that testimony, the pirates who had perpetrated it were getting away. The day after the attack on September the 6th, 1695, the fleet began to reassemble. At least, the Susanna, under Captain Thomas Wake, arrived on the scene. He was a bit disheartened to learn that he'd missed out on the action. Now, the Amity did not arrive on the scene. She'd been badly damaged in the fight the previous day and headed back to Madagascar. But once they had the treasure all loaded up, the fleet ventured on to the coast of India. Now we have one pretty good account of what happened there. It comes from a man named William Phillips, one of the pirates on board the Fancy, who later on would give a full confession. His account of the mutiny on board the Charles II gives us a lot of detail, really fleshes out what happened there. He doesn't, though, talk much about what happened during the battle for the Gangesawai. All he said there was, "...when we were on board, the Ganji Sawai, they being run into the hold, we called them up and gave them good quarter. We asked the captain what money he had on board. He told us he had one basket of about two thousand pounds that belonged to him. The rest belonged to Turkish merchants, which we found in the hold. There might be, in the hold, about one hundred fifty thousand pounds." A couple of notes there. When he says they were Turkish merchants, that's just what the Englishmen called them. They were Muslim Mughal Indians. And then, his account of the battle is very clipped. He doesn't go into any real detail. But I wonder why. It's possible that the interrogators who took his confession censored what he said. Or maybe it's because Phillips was trying to hide crimes which he had been actively involved in. Or maybe Coffee Khan was stretching the truth in his own account. Again, we don't really know, but this is another example of the inconsistencies about that day. And then, 152,000 pounds was a good haul at the time, but it was not even close to the whole take. That's just what they captured from the Gunsway in Hard Specie. Beyond that were gems and jewels and all manner of valuable trade goods goods that they would need to sell to turn into money, and the only place to do that was in India. So Phillips continues that they, quote, sailed, all four together, to Roger Poole. And he says that like it's a name, Roger Poole. But he means Rajapur. It reminds me of, well, if you think that the linguistic switch between Jolly Rouge and Jolly Roger is a bit of a stretch, well, I'd invite you to visit Roger Poole, a town on the coast of India. Phillips goes on, quote, Roger Poole, about thirty leagues from Bombay, where we have an English factory. There we watered and shared the money. We gave Captain Wake no share, not being there and having taken a vessel by the way, and shared about one hundred pounds a man, End quote. There he's saying that the crew of the Susanna had made about 100 pounds a man from another prize. But as that was the case, it was at this point that Susanna left the fleet and returned following the Amity to Madagascar. Phillips does not mention the trading of pirated goods they absolutely did there at Rashapur. There were certainly some unscrupulous merchants that bought a bunch of pirated goods and made a killing on it. He does go on to say that the pirates transferred a bunch of their silver into gold. They lost some money on those transactions, but the sheer amount of silver they would have had to carry around would be prohibitive. But it was at that point that things began to get a little bit tense among the crew. I told you that there was one source that calls out Joseph Pharaoh for his cowardice in the battle, one source that was there. This is that source. Phillips tells us that every and his crew gave Pharaoh and his men a share of what boils down to the Fatah Muhammad and one of the smaller ships sailing with Gunsway. But they did not share any of the spoils from Gunsway. Pharaoh and his men didn't fight for Ganji Sawai. And Phillips tells us that his men, quote, turned him out for a coward. Now that might be in violation of their agreed-upon pirate code, or it might not. It depends upon whether or not Joseph Pharaoh really was a coward. Did he refuse to fight when he should have, or did the pirates of the fancy double-cross them? Did they purposefully misconstrue what had happened? Did they use their superior numbers to deny Pharaoh and his men a fair share of the plunder? After all, they were pirates. But the crew of the Fancy, under Henry Every, and that of the Pearl, under William Mason, and Phillips calls him Meese. This guy's recorded as Mace, Mays, Mays with a Z, Meese and Mason. But still, Mason's crew and that of the Dolphin, which no longer existed and was on board the Fancy, they all got equal shares here. You know, more or less equal. Henry Every, as the admiral of the fleet and captain of the flagship, walked away with a full 3,000 pounds sterling. The rest of the crew earned equal shares of about 700 pounds. Though in good pirate tradition, the officers and those who got wounded either got multiple shares or compensatory payment for their injuries. We still don't know exactly how much the pirates captured, in early September 1695. Estimates range from between about 200,000 pounds and 700,000 pounds. That's half a million in wiggle room there, so it's hard to say with any certainty. But regardless, this was a rich, rich prize. So where does Ganji Sawai, really all of the ships taken on September the 5th, where do they rank? In terms of prizes taken by pirates. You'll see articles like this pop up from time to time. What I will say with confidence is this: the prizes captured on September the 5th, 1695, including Fatah Muhammad, Ganji Sawai, and the two ships accompanying her, was up to this point here in 1695 the largest prize yet captured by a pirate in the Age of Sail on the sea. Now, we should talk about the caveats in that sentence. First of all, before the Age of Sail, there were some major prizes captured by pirates. The uh, Cilician pirates, those that roamed the Mediterranean when Julius Caesar lived, they captured some really impressive ships. But for the Age of Sail... The mid-1500s to about the mid-1800s, this is the largest prize yet taken on the sea. There are two occasions on which larger prizes were captured by privateer, buccaneer, pirate-ish people, but both of those were on land. First, there's Francis Drake's capture of the Spanish mule train at Nombre de Dios in 1572. Nobody knows how much he captured, but of course, he couldn't carry all of that silver to his ships. He had to bury a ton of it all around Panama and give a lot of it away to his Indian allies. The amount that he was actually able to carry home was a fraction of what he stole. And then there is what was probably the largest prize ever taken. That is Henry Morgan's sack of Panama in 1671. Now. That wasn't as large a haul as Morgan had hoped for. The Panamanians had put most of their treasures on a ship and sailed it deep into the Pacific. Morgan was never able to track it down. But he still carried away more money than anyone else ever had or probably ever would. Problem is, he had about 2,000 men with him. When they divided it all up, per man it was smaller than average. And then in the future, there are going to be two prizes that are going to give Henry Every here in September 1695 a run for his money. Both are large, and we'll talk about those when we get to it. There's an argument to be made that neither of them beat Henry Every's take here on this single day. However, when we consider their total career wealth, those pirates will have made significantly more than Henry Every. Still, though, for now, in 1695, Every is undisputably number one. It was a bit of vindication for Henry Every. He'd predicted that they would find the richest prizes in the world in the Indian Ocean. That's why his men and those other ships followed him. And they'd found the Ganji Sawai, a name that literally translates in English to exceeding treasure." Henry Avery had been absolutely right. They had made more money than any pirates in history. Quite an achievement indeed.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
1: Abuses which had been heaped upon the victims did paint a target on the backs of the pirates, the largest target in the world, and the pirates knew it. Once they were done dividing up the loot, they scattered to the seven winds, as it said. We're going to follow them next time, for now I want to travel about seventy leagues up the coast of India to the port at Surat, to the East India Company factory there. And remember, in this context, a factory is really a uh, fortified base for the East India Company, including office buildings, a mansion for the president, bunkhouses, and actual factories. As well as prisons. They all had some cells inside. And in the prison there at Surat, a recent transfer from a Mughal prison had been shipped in. His name was Robert Culliford. He was one of the masterminds of the mutiny against Captain Kidd back in 1689. He sailed on board Blessed William and sailed alongside many of the men who had just attacked a Mughal fleet a few days back. And here he was in prison at the factory at Surat. But he wasn't alone here at the prison at Surat. James Kelly, another pirate who will soon become important, was at that same prison, and a bunch of other English pirates. It must have been a... You know, I I was about to say a bit of a shock, but really it must have alleviated some of the boredom when, outside the walls of the factory there, arose a tumult. If Robert Culliford and James Kelly and the other pirates could see outside the walls from their prison cells, they would have noted a large crowd of angry protesters gathering. And when I say protesters here, don't picture hippies and don't picture picket lines. Instead, picture the Bastille, 1789. These people were here to do violence. The cause of their protest, really a mob action against the English East India Company, was the piracy so recently perpetrated by Englishmen against Mughal shipping, and of course the violence done against their women. These people had been led to believe, largely but not entirely by Kafi Khan, that somehow the English East India Company was to blame. Now, the governor of Surat... A Mughal official did not need this headache. You know, he didn't like the East India Company either, but if they did wind up doing some damage, or, God forbid, kill someone, it would mean real trouble between the company and his government. So he ordered a contingent of cavalry in to stabilize the situation. The president of the factory, an Englishman named Samuel Ansley, Well, he wasn't exactly predisposed to let this cavalry detachment into his fortress, but he didn't have the power to refuse them. So he opened the gates. The Mughal cavalry dispersed the mob and marched in, for, you know, the protection of the English inside, obviously. Now, we might mock the English of the late 17th century for their habit of using phrases like Moorish or Turkish to mean any and all Muslim peoples. And rightly so, it's wrong, but the Mughal Indians were guilty of very similar things. For example, they confused, or maybe better to say combined, two words that were not really the same thing at all English and pirate. They were one and the same to them. All Englishmen were pirates, and all pirates were Englishmen. You know, maybe some French or Dutch pirates were causing trouble, filthy Englishmen. In fact, there was a Dutch rover just a few years prior who had been causing them some trouble. Mughal authorities did finally capture him and bring him to trial, but the Mughal officials demanded that the English East India Company answer for his crimes. It was a whole thing. Englishman would try to explain that, look, this guy's Dutch, we're English. And then the Mughals would turn around and be like, yeah, but your king is Dutch, so aren't you Dutch now? And they'd be like, well, yes, he is, but no, we aren't. It was, it was a problem. But that means that when Ansley heard about this piracy in the Indian Ocean, allegedly perpetrated by Englishmen, he knew immediately to bring all of his agents into the factory. Everyone out in the field was recalled. Now, a few of them didn't make it. Some Englishmen were caught out and killed out there. It became clear almost immediately that this situation was very dire. The mob was eventually dispersed, but should the Grand Mughal decide to move against the English East India Company, well, these men would be killed, probably by the cavalry that they let into their fort. And as soon as the Mughal heard what had happened, he did indeed move against the company, but not in Surat, in Bombay to the south, their center of power. We're talking about uh, an army moving against the company. Now, the president of that factory, kind of the head of the East India Company in India, a man named Sir John Gayer, wrote a letter to the governor of his province and to Aurangzeb. And it's worth quoting here. Geyer writes, How often have we been falsely charged? Nay, how often hath it been proved so, and yet upon every fresh alarm of a pirate on the coast all is still laid upon the English? Hath it not been sufficiently proved that that rogue that did so much mischief for two years, that Dutchman, all which was falsely charged on the English, was done by people of another nation and not the English? But of course he had to know that these pirates were Englishmen. He probably knew Henry Every's name. So he goes on, And we further say, suppose it should be proved there is English pirates in the seas as well as other nations. Is the English East India Company to be charged with their crimes? How unreasonable a thing would that be? Has not the great king of Hindustan he means Aurangzeb, many pirates on his own coast of his own subjects that robs and plunders the vessels of his own, as well as the subjects of others, notwithstanding all the care he takes to prevent it. He goes on, can it be imagined if we were guilty of such horrible crimes as is laid to our charge by vile and unreasonable men as to rob the king's ships and bring their money so robbed to Bombay that we should at the same time send a ship of so considerable cargo to be landed at the king's port, he means Surat, and supply his subjects with so large a quantity of guns. End quote. There at the end he's making mention of a mission he did, a goodwill mission after news of Henry Avery's piracy had arrived, to arm the people of Surat against further piracies. His letter, I mean it's... Mostly right, it makes good points all around, but it did no good at all. See, the Mughal officials there in India had a very strong piece of evidence against them. At least they thought so. They had in their possession a copy of an open letter written by Henry Every himself, addressed to every Englishman in the world, announcing his intentions to attack Mughal shipping. Two officials there in India, that's all the proof they needed. Evidence of collusion, clearly. And it didn't help the case of the English that there were actually some... privateers docked at the factory in Surat. Mostly they were Dutch, but the Mughals couldn't tell the difference there. And really, they were only one step above pirates. A small step. They very nearly got caught up in this whole kerfuffle, too. Because within just a few days, the Mughals dropped the façade here. The Englishmen of the factory at Surat were arrested and put into chains and put into their own cells. One of those Dutch ships almost got seized, only barely managed to escape, and made her way to Bombay. To inform the president of the factory there what had happened... Now, Gayer moved fast. He wanted to forestall any executions and therefore a probable war. He bought some time with a flurry of letters to men of import all over India. All of them basically saying, wait, stop, don't do anything rash, we can figure this out. I just need to talk to the king. You don't want a full-scale war here. Mughal officials made no move to provoke the English, but also... No favorable response. They did not release those Englishmen in prison at Surat, and Gayer, in fact, had to smuggle one of his men out on one of those Dutch ships with orders to go to England and tell King William what was happening there. That mission would be a success, but for the moment, back in that cell in Surat, with Robert Culliford inside, one has to wonder... "'Considering the limited number of cells in any one of these factories "'and the large number of men that were currently residing within, "'who might have been imprisoned close enough to Robert Culliford to talk a bit, "'have some conversations about their current situation and Robert Culliford's resume? "'We don't know anything here, officially speaking,' Officially speaking, Robert Culliford would escape that prison in just a couple of months, along with James Kelly and virtually all the other pirates who were there. I can't help but wonder, what if he didn't escape? What if Robert Culliford was set free? What if, given the precarious position in which the East India Company found itself and the delicate diplomatic line they were forced to walk, unable to act in any kind of official capacity against the Mughal Empire. What if they decided that they needed a kind of private, secret naval mercenary corps? Men who knew their business that would be based out of somewhere not too close by, maybe, I don't know, Madagascar, men who would be able to prosecute a kind of shadow war against the Mughal Navy, led by a man who Captain William Kidd, who was beginning to outfit his ship for his journey to this region, a man that William Kidd personally hated. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Next time we're going to visit St. Mary's Island off the coast of Madagascar, and discuss the revolving door of pirates that were going to make their way to that island in the months to come. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilly. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.